Thank you, lad. It's good to be with you this morning. Let's, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. So, Father in heaven, we come before you now in these next few moments. We come before your word and sacrament. And we pray that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us hearts that would respond to you in faith and repentance. Lord, enrich us and grow us, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's good to be with all of you this morning, Church of the, of the Redeemer. Um, it's a familiar church uh, to me and my wife. We've been able to be here uh, a couple of times and visit with you all. We only live about 10 minutes down the road. And uh, I go, I'll go way back with Adam. Adam and I actually went to seminary together. And so I've known Adam for about you know, 20 plus years and gotten to know Matt and Adam and I uh, stay connected. We, we text one another during college football season, especially I'm a South Carolina Gamecock fan. I did not text him during this last season's game because I knew that, um, that he would be quite bitter about that. If you're not a football fan, just don't mention the Tennessee-South Carolina game to Adam when he comes back. That would not be a good thing to do. Um, but it's great to be with all of you and to see so many familiar faces and uh, see all the overlap between Christ's Covenant and Church of the Redeemer. Uh, it's just wonderful, the brotherhood and uh, that we share uh, between our churches. So it's a privilege to come and preach to you this morning. As you know, we are in the Psalms of Ascent, so you can turn there to Psalm 129. And I'll tell you, the Psalms of Ascent are some of my favorite uh, books in the Bible. I, I dare say you could be stuck on a desert island and you could only have Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 to read the rest of your life and you would never get to the bottom of all of its richness um, for you. As you know, the historical setting for these Psalms is Israel is going up to Jerusalem to worship. And these are Psalms or songs that they would sing as they would journey up that mountain. So we think of their, uh, historically, we think of their physical pilgrimage, but more than that, these psalms are about the spiritual pilgrimage of God's people. And that's you, and that's me. And so they hold timeless truths for us on our spiritual journey. And hopefully we'll see that in Psalm 129 as we look at it this morning. Psalm 129 recalls the affliction, the opposition, and even hostility that God's people will face and that God's people have faced. It's actually called by many a psalm for the persecuted. And we'll see that as we look at the historical context for Israel. But as we do that, you might think, okay, it's a psalm for the persecuted. That seems a little bit like a, a little bit of a stretch to apply to us today. I mean, we could look at church history and say the church has historically been persecuted, right? But we've had it pretty good here in America. So it might seem like a bit of a stretch to try and apply it to us today, but I don't think I'm telling you anything new to say that times are changing even in our country. So uh, when I was growing up in the 80s, the 90s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, 
You think of how cultural elites and people regarded Christianity. Maybe if they, people found out that you were a Christian, they would see you or you held Christian convictions. They would see you as, as somewhat backwards, maybe anti-intellectual, something like that. There would be a dismissive posture. But something's happened in our country in the last 10 to 15 years. There's been a cultural shift that you can observe. And it's that shift that's moved from a dismissive posture about Christianity to one that's more hostile. So when people find out that you are a Christian and you share Christian convictions with them, they may not only think that you're backwards, but they might think that you and your beliefs are actually a problem. And we've seen this shift in our country, and who knows where that will end. I think we can get in trouble trying to follow that trail out. But whether persecution or not, how do you and I deal with opposition in our lives? Think about it that way. How do you and I deal with affliction when it comes our way? Affliction is something that comes from outside. Outside of yourself. It's brought on by the forces that oppose God's people. Now for Israel, that took the form of nations. It took the form of governments. It took the form of rulers. And certainly that could be possible for us one day. But it could be spiritual as well. It could be affliction just from the ravages of sin. Or living in a fallen world. In Psalm 129, it doesn't give you and me the answers to all of our questions, but what it does give, it gives us a prayerful foundation for walking through affliction, whatever form it takes. And so, Church of Redeemer, I want to give you three truths to draw from this passage as we read it and seek to apply it. Three truths about God and His people as they go through affliction. Number one, God preserves His people through affliction. God preserves His people through affliction. Number two, God is present with His people in affliction. And then number three, God prevails with His people over affliction. And with those points in front of us, let's read God's Word now. Psalm 129. Hear the Word of the Lord. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet, they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. And He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You might have noticed uh, that there is great variety in the Psalms of Ascent. As you've been walking through uh, this series, there are Psalms, there are Psalms of praise, 
There's, there's psalms of thanksgiving. There's, there's psalms of lament. There's actually psalms with some imprecations. This is one of them. That is God's people calling down the judgment of God on his enemies. You see a real contrast in these psalms. You can see it if you compare last week's psalm to this week's psalm. Just think of Psalm 128, which centers on the blessings of God's people. You have Psalm 128. And now you have Psalm 129, which centers on the pain of God's people. Now think about that, church of God. Why such a vast swing between Psalm 128 on the one end and Psalm 129 on the other? Or better, let let me ask you this question. Why not praise all the time? I mean, these are the Psalms after all. Why not praise all the time? And the short answer to that is wonderful, is that these psalms are intended to reflect and speak to the whole of our spiritual experience. And so there are times when you might feel like you're on the mountaintop and you're singing praise to God, and then there are times where you feel like you're in the valley. You're going through a deep time of depression or a deep time of struggle. And you're not on the mountaintop. And what these psalms tell us is that blessing and pain are part of the path of discipleship. Do you see that? Blessing and pain are part of the path of the spiritual pilgrim. There's a realism here that should encourage us. It tells us, it tells you and me that God intends to meet us and that He has a word for us no matter where you and I are on our spiritual journey. He has something to say to us. And so as we look at God preserving His people, we start with the pain of God's people. Look at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then he says, Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. There's this refrain. And the, the, the refrain is this, Hey Israel, Recall the pain of your youth. Now, who wants to do that? What if I were to tell you, think about your worst childhood memory. Who wants to dwell on that? You know what my first memory is? My first memory is at four years old. I was running through my parents' living room, and I tripped and I fell, and my forehead just went right on the corner of a speaker and just busted my head wide open. One of my first, my first memory in life is just going to the hospital with a, with a busted head. I try not to dwell on that too much, but think about that. What is, your, what is your worst memory? The psalmist tells Israel to recall the pain of their youth. And he's not only saying, think about it, he's saying, recite it. These refrains are quite common In the Psalms, there's something like a responsive reading. You know, we see these in in your order of worship, where the speaker says something and then the people respond. There's an announcement and then a a response. Psalm 124 contemplates God being on their side. And it starts with, if the Lord had not been on our side. And then he says, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side. So there's this conversation going on between the speaker and, and those who are hearing. Now, now, why is that? What, what's the point of that? And the point is that it would soak in, that it would dawn, that the truth and implications 
of the Lord being on their side would dawn upon Israel. You know, when you really want something to soak in, you repeat it. Or maybe you put a song to it. And that's what these actually are. In reality, they are songs. We do this all the time with, uh, with children's songs. You think about all the children's songs that you learned growing up and how they stay with you. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I remember growing up in church and that resounding song, I'm in the Lord's army. Do you know what I'm talking about? And there was this response, right? As you're a kid, you're singing, I'm in the Lord's army. And as a kid, you were supposed to stand up and go, yes, sir. And there was the big repeat and all of those things. Those things tend to stick with us. Even adults, as we think about songs that get stuck in our head, you play an 80s song for me, it's immediately stuck in my head for the rest of the day. I can't get it out. What's the point? The point is what we sing about. Think about what you sing about gets into your soul. He is saying, Israel, sing the blues, as it were. Why? Remember the years in slavery in Egypt, Israel. Remember how you were as a nation. Think about this. Remember, Israel, that you were born into affliction. And affliction is associated with your very birth. There's a connection here to Christ that we'll come back to at the end. But he's saying... Recall how you were subjugated under force, how you were pursued, how you were hunted down by Pharaoh. Israel, recall your enemies that threatened you on all sides as you journeyed to the promised land. Recall the battles. Recall the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Philistines. Recall the Assyrians. Recall, even most recently, the Babylonians. He says, Israel, you've been enslaved, you've been surrounded, you've been outnumbered, you've been oppressed most of your life. Think about that. And yet, look at the end of verse 2, and yet, they have not prevailed against me. Do you see the punctuation mark there? He acknowledges the pain of Israel. But where's the accent? The accent is on God's faithfulness. It seems like an invitation to self-pity. Right? Think, about, um, think about your youth. Think about your worst memory. And we often... Think about that, and we like to talk with our children about, about how hard you know, life, life has been, how hard life was when we, were, uh, when we were younger. I tease my kids about having first world problems. Do you know what first world problems are? They're problems that aren't really problems. We were listening to a comedian a couple weeks ago, and he was sort of mimicking this. And he was talking about how we and believers, we, uh, believers in America, we live in such comfort and we might have a, a verse or plaque about, about persecution on our kitchen wall. And he was mimicking that. And he was 
sort of impersonating someone and said, you know what, my, I'll tell you what, I've just really gone through it. My Amazon order was a day late. Can you believe that? And I'll tell you, I just had to be patient and wait on the Lord. And he sustained me. Now we like to tell people how hard it was when we were young. And sometimes that can be a mode of self-pity. But that's not what the psalmist is doing with Israel here. He's telling them to recall their past, to remind them and to move them to consider how God has been faithful. How God has delivered them. How God has preserved them and kept them from destruction. He says, take inventory, Israel. Yes, your enemies, they've afflicted you from the beginning. But think about this. Your very existence is a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people. It's rather remarkable. That fledgling nation that was born into slavery... And you're still here. So this psalm is a call to recount God's faithfulness and to realize that we, that you and I as the people of God can entrust ourselves to God's care. Why? Because God preserves His people. And sometimes we need to remember that when we're going through affliction. God preserves His people. There's also an interesting parallel to the church. This is remarkable. Think about the church today. The church was born into affliction. If you don't believe me, go and read the book of Acts. They were, go- they were born into persecution. Think of all the opposition of the Jewish leaders. The Roman government against them. And all the persecution of the church over the years. And yet, here we are. It's rather amazing. God has preserved us. Does not make us immune from pain or affliction? But it tells us that though the people of God have often been acquainted with affliction and suffering and even persecution in this life, It does not equal their defeat and their ruin. I could say it this way. The presence of pain does not equal the absence of God. The presence of pain does not equal the absence of God. Though many times we are tempted to feel that, to think that, believe that. But what do the scriptures tell us? The presence of pain does not equal the absence of God. Which leads us to point two. God is present with his people in affliction. He details their suffering a bit more. This is affliction that's brought on by God's enemies. He says in verse 3, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. You think of a field that's being plowed back in the day. Some of you know this better than I do. You think of a tiller that we might use now. They used to have a plowshare and they would, they would hook the oxen up to it. And the oxen would start to pull those plowshares. And you know how heavy they were. And they would just churn up the soil for miles and miles. Just froze. You mentioned that... that we have a family farm up in Illinois. We like to go and visit in the summertime. We used to look out and see that field. 
And when they've been plowed, you see all that loose dirt. And all that's been churned up. Furrows as far as the eye can see. We have machinery for that now, but you get the picture. Now take that imagery and think about that being on the back that is exposed. He says they plowed our back, long gashes in the flesh, back and forth, row after row, turning their back into a bloody raw mess. The psalmist says, that's what our oppressors did to us. So this is real pain, people of God. And again, we might find it difficult to resonate with this exact experience. How many of us would equate our experience to that? Probably not any of us. But I think there's a broader category that we can take into view in this passage. Sinclair Ferguson points out that the kind of affliction this psalm ultimately has in view not only encompasses earthly powers, right, governments, leaders, but spiritual powers as well. Affliction brought on, affliction for you and me brought on by all the dark forces that oppose us and seek to wear down God's people. Another trial, another problem, another issue bearing down on you and me. Think of our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world and its systems, its, its beliefs, its practices that are opposed to God. The flesh, our own sinfulness and our own weakness. The devil. Jesus says, John 14, 30, calls Satan the ruler of this world. We are surrounded, friends. If you don't believe me, just go home and check the news. Check Twitter. Look at the cultural climate out there. And what's the message? We can become fixated on that. So what do we do? What do we do when we're surrounded? Maybe think of the scene in Braveheart, a movie made some years ago, where the Scottish army is out on, on the battlefield. And, and they're beleaguered. They're, they're overwhelmed. They haven't eaten for days They don't have weaponry. They're making weapons for themselves. And then they look out and they see the English army, the king's army, arrayed against them. And as they're looking out, they're just staring at that army. And I remember the line, one of those Scottish soldiers, he's just looking at them and he just goes, so many. So many. But the scene scene shifts When William Wallace comes riding onto the battlefield. And what happens is their eyes move from staring at that English army to looking at Wallace. And listening to the words that Wallace has to say. And it's his presence that makes all the difference in the world. And he says, will you fight? And they wouldn't fight at first. But once their eyes go to him and they hear his words, what do they do? They charge the army. Similar picture here. God is on the battlefield with His people. Against the forces that are arrayed against us, against you and against me. God comes 
writing in. And the psalmist, he makes this turn that you and I must make when we're faced with opposition and affliction and difficulty. He makes this turn that looks at who God is and what He's done. Pay attention to that. Verse 4. What does he say? The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now we might wonder, okay, I'm feeling opposition. I'm feeling afflicted. Maybe even persecuted. Okay, here's the answer. God is righteous. All right, well, how does that help me? Okay, God's holy, God's, God's, God's set apart, I get that, that's true. But what he's pointing to, what he's pointing to is God's righteousness displayed through his faithfulness. See, the righteousness of God is not just an abstraction, it's not just an idea. He's pointing to God's righteousness, which is displayed and demonstrated through his faithfulness, through his redemptive acts. And that's key. That's where he's taking them. We must remember that he's telling Israel not merely to take a temporal view of their suffering. We might suffer. But he's telling them to take a long view, an ultimate view. And if you do that, you will find that God is with you. God is with his people on the battlefield fighting for them. He says, he's cut the cords of the wicked. So there's the enemies of God and they're doing their plowing back and forth on Israel's back. Just think about that. And the picture is, as they're doing this plowing and all the weight of those plows, as they're doing these things, the picture is that someone comes rushing up onto those plowshares and just pulls out a knife and just cuts the cords. And so what happens is those oxen keep going. They keep marching. They keep plodding. But where are their plowshares? They're way back there. They're not with them anymore. They're wasting their time. Back and forth they can go. But they're wasting their time. Their efforts are ultimately useless and powerless. And the psalmist says, that's the enemies of God. He says, Israel, recall the righteousness of God, how He has acted on your behalf. He cut the cords when He swallowed up the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He cut the cords of Israel's enemies in the conquest of the Promised Land. He cut the cords of great nations and great governments who oppressed Israel. He considers the works of God. He says, look no further than His redemptive acts on our behalf. He says, Israel, look back and see what God has done. Your enemies are ultimately powerless over you. You might be in the moment. But consider your history, your redemptive history. And so what's the message to you and me? I mean, we might be suffering affliction. And you might be thinking, well, that's, that's, that's good for Israel, Derek, but this is, this is present day. So I'm going through this trial, I'm going through this valley, or we're encountering opposition. People who are opposed to God's people. How does this apply to my history? 
Your history, my history. And friends, this is where we have to learn to read the Psalms through New Testament eyes. This applies to us. This applies to us in the work of Christ. For He's cut the cords of sin and death. He's conquered the flesh. He's broken the power of Satan. Colossians 2.15 says, He's disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So the enemies of God, the world, the flesh, and the devil, listen, they might trod on our backs. Their opposition, they, it might be loud, it might be vehement, it might be determined. They might be able to afflict us, but they cannot condemn us. And that's the message. We must remember that. Whatever suffering comes, the cords of death, the cords of death have been broken for God's people. And so how is God present with His people then? God is present with His people in affliction through the triumph of Jesus. I want to say that again. God is present with His people in affliction through the triumph of Jesus. It's the presence of the risen Christ. Christ our Savior. Christ our great high priest. Christ our intercessor who is with us. Who hears our cries. Christ our King. Westminster Shorter Catechism question 26 says this, that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. So we must fold this into our inventory as you consider your past, your present, your future. You must fold this gospel knowledge into that, what has God done for you? You must take that ultimate view. The psalmist takes inventory. He remembers. He remembers that God preserves His people. That He is present with His people. And with that sort of gospel inventory, He goes from defense to offense. Which brings us to the third point. God prevails with His people over Affliction. The psalmist appeals to God once more. And here's what he says in verse 5. He says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Well, who are, who are the people who hate Zion? They're the people who oppose God's righteous ways. You know, it's interesting. He doesn't say, and commentators note this, that he doesn't say, May all who hate Jerusalem, but Zion. Zion being the city where the Lord dwells. Zion, the city of God, which points to the people of God throughout time. And so this psalm stretches and extends to you and to me. And he prays for the ultimate defeat of God's enemies. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So he appeals to God. He prays for their ultimate defeat. Now, it's important to note here that the psalmist is not speaking out of some sense of, of a personal vindictiveness or personal vengeance. That's not what's happening here. It's not that kind of appeal. 
Rather, the, these imprecations that we read here, ultimately they, they, they flow out of God's covenant promises. Remember what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3? What's his promise there? He says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And so the psalmist is saying, display your righteousness, O Lord. Uphold your promise to Abraham. Do as you have promised to do. And that's the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith, realizing that God is with us and we turn to him and we say, O Lord, would you do as you have promised to do? When faced with forces that oppose Zion to appeal to God, to uphold His promises, vindicate your people, O Lord. Make your enemies your footstool. Make them fruitless, is what he says. He says they'd be like grass on, on the rooftop. It's, you know, we haven't rained in a while. I've got these brown spots in my yard now. What's happened? The sun is just scorching the grass. He says, may, may they be like that. May they be scorched by the heat of the sun. And what's he saying here? He's saying, Lord, cut them off. He's saying, Lord, may they not be fruitful. May they not multiply. May they not be long-lasting. May they not have descendants upon descendants. I think about that and how we can pray for in our particular context. How can we pray? When we think of godless forces and ideas and principalities and things that oppose the truth of God's righteousness. What should we pray? Lord, we pray that there would not be descendants upon descendants. May it be short-lived. I remember I had a, a professor in seminary. And uh, Dr. Harold O.J. Brown. Some of you maybe have read some of his books. And he, he wrote a book called The Sensate Culture. There's a little bit about our society and culture in, in the 90s. And uh, Dr. Brown would say that he thinks we're going to a cycle of a real down period where we're, we're really, uh, the, the, the results of the sexual revolution have really taken over and we're going to descend. And he would tell us, he, was no, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't claim to be a prophet, but he'd say, you know, that will come to an end. And we asked him why. And he said, simply because a society that is doing and believing the things that we're doing and believing cannot sustain itself. And so you think about some of the things that we're witnessing right now. And even people who are unbelievers are starting to realize that a society that's doing and believing the things that we're doing and believing cannot sustain itself. And here's the question. Whenever, if that does happen, where will the church of God be? Would the church of God be standing with God present in the midst of her saying, Lord, uphold your promises. Thank you for bringing that to be fruitless so that people can find what real fruit is. May they dry out just as quickly as they spring up, so much so that when you walk by, it's impossible to pronounce any blessing on them. When you walk by and you go, what in the world has happened here? Some kind of scorched earth. The psalmist knows, and this is one of the things that we can take from this, the psalmist knows that there are higher powers than earthly powers. 
Yeah, Ed Welch wrote a book called When People Are Big and God is Small, and sometimes I think we could apply that to how we think of earthly powers like governments. We think of earthly power and it's too big for us. You'll do one or two things. You'll either start wringing your hands or you'll start raising your fists. The Scriptures call us to neither one of those. But it calls us to faith. Isaiah 40 Verse 24, here's what he says about the rulers of the earth. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. There's a higher power than earthly powers. And what we find here is the psalmist not raising his fists or wringing his hands, but lifting his head to God in the midst of affliction. He says, bless your people according to your righteousness, O Lord. Judge the peoples of the earth according to your righteousness. Take what is right, O Lord. Take what is wrong and make it right. What a great prayer for us to pray for ourselves and others. And so Psalm 129 What does it do for you and for me? Well, it furnishes God's people with a rich response, a prayerful response to persecution. Maybe that's not for us right now, but opposition, affliction. It's one that calls us in the face of these things to reflect, Church of God, to reflect more deeply on who God is. Is And how do you reflect more deeply on who God is? You look at what He has done for you. And when we do that, when we do that, that strengthens our faith. And in turn, that brings us to pray more boldly. It brings us to live more boldly. The psalm helps us see that when affliction, opposition, and persecution comes, It should not lead us to despair, but it should lead us to God, to appeal to His righteousness. And here's a question. Will we see an immediate answer to our prayers if we pray these things? Again, not out of a sense of personal vindictiveness or personal vengeance on an individual, but if we pray for God's righteousness to prevail, if you pray for the wicked to crumble, and they don't, What happens then? What if God doesn't answer that prayer immediately? You know, that's all over the Psalms. Lord, why do the wicked prosper? That's one of the pressing questions. So what do we do when we don't have an immediate answer? And the the answer is we look to the ultimate answer. When you don't have an immediate answer, you look to the ultimate, ultimate answer. You look at God's righteousness clearly displayed before us in Christ. The one, Christ, the one who carries the affliction of his people. I said at the beginning of the sermon that Israel was born into affliction. Well, Christ was born into our affliction. Christ, who gave his back to be scourged. Christ, who was plowed for you and for me. And we realize that out of those long furrows on Christ's back has come salvation 
eternal life and ultimate victory. And when we see these things, we know that the Lord will uphold us. For He says to the church of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that frees us, church of God, to stand for righteousness. Frees us to pray in faith and to journey in hope and assurance. Even if we live in an ever-increasing hostile world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promises and your goodness to us. Lord, we confess to you how slow and dull to believe these things we are. Lord, how weak we are. And how we often so look at the realities of this earthly life and we treat them as ultimate instead of treating your promises as ultimate. I pray, Lord, you would strengthen our faith even as we come to this table clearly displayed in the sacraments. Christ broken for us. Christ shedding his blood for us. Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to respond and to live for you. In Christ's name, amen.